He's enlisted in the Army. He's going to be going to basic training on July, first part of July, I think, what, July 6th, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so today's his last Sunday going to be with us. He has to self-quarantine, I think, to be able to go to basic training. So, Ethan, we love you, man. We're going to pray for you at the end of the service. I won't make you stand up here any longer because we did that in the first service. But uh, we want to pray for him as he uh, prepares to go into basic training. I know some of you guys and gals probably have known what that experience is like, and so we want to lift him up to the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of things happening in the life of our church. Um, Tomorrow we're getting a new sign, Lord willing. We're going to break ground on our building here in the next week or so, Lord willing. I keep saying Lord willing because you just never know what's going to happen. Uh, so a lot of great things happen. We have a special announcement we're going to share with you at the end of the service as well. So I'm going to make you wait in anticipation uh, while I preach just for that. But a lot of good things, and uh, we're excited about those and, and some that may not be so uh, pleasant as well. But take your Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be kind of kicking around that chapter and then chapters 2 and 3 as well this morning. But you know, the last several months have been pretty difficult for us. Would you agree with that? The last three months, three and a half months have just been whirlwind of bad news. I mean, from one thing to the another, uh, to the next. It's just been terrible. I think 2020 could go down in the history books as, if not, one of the worst years of our lives, however long we may live. The year began with a hotly debated, highly political impeachment trial. And then if that wasn't enough, right there in the midst of the, in the, midst of the impeachment hearings, uh, uh, we got news of a new and highly contagious coronavirus that was making headway in, in uh, Wuhan, China. And it began to spread. It quickly spread throughout the globe. Uh, number of deaths began to skyrocket and uh, cause countries to shut down, economies to shut down, fear swept globally as a result. Health professionals began to take to the airways literally every single day, informing us of the threat to certain populations, sharing preventative measures that needed to be taken, giving us reports on what was and was not happening as far as the spread of, of this virus. And these reports went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, it seemed like the curve was being flattened. Things might be beginning to be reopened. Economies may begin to flourish once again. And all of a sudden, we are hit with the news, unfortunate news, that a black man by the name of George Floyd was killed by a white Minneapolis police officer. Floyd's death was senseless. It was clearly a case of police brutality by Derek Chauvin or Chauvin. Protests ensued. Rioting began. Violent rioting and looting spread from Minneapolis around the country. Racial tension and violence have seized the attentions of all of us because that's what we see in images coming across our screens, whether it's a television, a tablet, a phone, doesn't matter. We see burning buildings, toppled monuments, and funerals, all because of the racial tension in our nation. We are walking through some dark, dark days. It's a growing frustration, a growing unrest among the people in our nation. I mean, I, I think we can literally say today we are divided people, divided on every level, on every area of conversation. We're divided over COVID and all that's associated with it. We're divided politically. We're divided racially. We're divided spiritually, and that's really the crux of all of it. Right now as a country, we're in the fight for the soul of America. What are we to be? Who will we become? That's what is at stake. And people are clashing against one another as they fight for what they believe America 
should be. And I told the first service, and I'm going to tell you, that we as the church are in this fight as well. We cannot, nor should we, sit passively on the sidelines. God has called us to be salt. He's called us to be light in this culture. We're to be a flavoring, preserving presence in a decadent place. We're to shed light into the darkness. This is our biblical as well as our gospel mandate. We're to make a difference in the culture that we live. And yet we as the church are having a hard time understanding the times in which we live. How are we to interpret what's happening? How are we should to respond to what's happening? We're, 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 we're dancing around how we should address the issues. What is it that we're to do? How should we respond? These questions that we should be asking ourselves demand that we possess a correct perspective of what is happening in our culture and couple that with a correct understanding of God's Word. You see, as Christ followers, we must view culture through the lens of faith. That is a trust and an adherence to the Bible's teaching. We cannot nor should we seek to interpret culture by culture. We interpret culture by the Word of God. We don't interpret culture by our feelings or what we think is right or what we think should be right. We interpret culture through the lens of Scripture. Much is changing in America. Secular ideologies that have been gaining footholds in our nation, in every level of our nation, every aspect of our nation, are changing the face of this country. It's replacing the Judeo-Christian ethic that built us and our society. Those ideologies are not just isolated to the things that are outside this church, though. I think sometimes as Christians we think, well, that's outside the church. It's not going to affect us or affect us inside the church. That is not true at all. It affects us. You see, the things that we read and see and experience out there, unfortunately, we bring that back with us to the church. And we begin to view the things in Christian life through the lens of culture rather than viewing culture through the lens of the Christian experience, which is biblically influenced. I had a person, it's happened multiple times, but just recently tell me that my understanding of something so fundamental as church attendance was quote-unquote old school. Think about that, that we in the church are many times thinking that church attendance, something so fundamental, a command so simple, that given over and over again, Hebrews, tell, Hebrews 10 tells us to not forsake the assembling of the brethren, something so fundamental that many people today in the church would view that as old school. I can love Jesus but not be a part of his people. Tell me how that's the case. Tell me how you can love the Lord but not love the people he gave his life to redeem. And yet, we see things changing across our nation, changing the commands that we believe. See, the truth is God's Word is still today just as true, just as life-giving as it was when He gave it through the prophets and the apostles. For that reason, we dare not, as God's people, change our beliefs. We do not change our practices to fit the teachings of a changing culture, a progressively secular culture, nor should we change our beliefs and convictions to accommodate a sinful drift in our lives. What we do instead is we hold firm to Scripture because it's true. We believe the Bible's testimony of itself that it is truth, John 17, 17. 
God has given us in His Word a commentary by which we understand what's happening around us. And so we look through Scripture and seek to interpret what's happening in the culture today. In fact, the only way to rightly understand and interpret the shifting, shifting cultural ideologies is to filter them through the grid of Scripture. How else do we interpret them? What else gives life? Nothing does. So we can all agree that we're living in very unstable and restless days. I think we can agree that the cultural climate oftentimes leaves us wondering, how do we respond? What is our response to the things that we see? I mean, we as parents, as Christian parents, do we pull our kids out of the public school arena because of the things that are constantly being pushed on our children? How do we engage in just the workplace? What do we do as Christians when everything that we seem to believe is eroding out from underneath us culturally? Serious questions that we're wrestling with. On top of that, how do we respond in the face of such racial tension in our nation? When everything that we say, everything that we do is scrutinized through that lens. So this morning what I want to do is I want to begin a series called Faith and Culture. And I want to address over the next six Sundays six crucial areas that I believe are most pertinent in the day and age in which we're living. So we're going to look at today life. We're going to look next week at race. We're going to look at social justice. We're going to look at immigration. We're going to look at sexuality. And then we're going to close up July by looking at what the Bible says regarding the environment. My prayer through all of this is that God will use this series to bring greater awareness to the issues as well as provide a biblical, but here's the key, gospel perspective on how we engage and respond to the people in our culture all around us. The goal is not to argue a point with others. It's not to provide you with everything you need to go and, and, and apologetically argue the case. The, go, the, the goal here is to help us understand how to take the gospel and speak into a culture that is far from God, a people that are far from God, and help them to see that God offers a better design for their lives. And so right now, we're going to begin with the issue of life. We could look at social justice, we could look at race, we could look at sexuality, because those are three areas that are most prominent in the headlines this morning. But I believe to better answer those questions and look at those issues, we need to talk about the value of life. Because when it comes to the topic of race, what, what pre- precedes race is the fact that the people of different races have life. And when we talk about justice in our society, those people seeking certain justices or the need thereof, We need to talk about life. What is the value of life as well as sexuality? The LGBTQ movement. What does God say about life? And so that's where we want to begin this morning. So let me just make this statement, and then we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. What we find here in the Bible, what I'm arguing for this morning is this, that human beings have intrinsic and eternal value because they are created by God in His image, right? So that's the premise. That's the idea of everything I'm going to say this morning, arguing out of these first three chapters of Genesis, is that human beings, you and I and everyone in this world, we have intrinsic, deep-rooted, deep-seated value Because we were created in the image of God. And on top of that, that's not just a a temporary value. It is eternal. When a person is created, there is an eternity 
that's created as well. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning verse 26, God says this in his word. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we discover much of what we need to know about the value of human life. What we read here helps us understand how to respond to the issues of race. That's why we're beginning here with the issue of life and how life came into existence because we learn something here that we need to know as we seek to understand racial tension, racial issues that we will, Lord willing, address next Sunday. We recognize the reason justice is threatened and how to speak to the social issue that results from it. We learn why our response to the immigrant is important to God from this because we see that every single person, regardless of the color of their skin or the ethnicity by which they're born into, there is value there. In these pages, sexuality is defined for us, and we see how humanity fits into the environmental picture. So here's the statement that I want you to live with. If we get Genesis wrong, then our view of life is wrong. If we don't understand what God said at the very beginning, then everything that flows after that is going to be distorted. What we find in the first two chapters of Genesis is Moses articulating how God created the heavens and the earth. Sometimes people will argue that there's two creation accounts. There's not two creation accounts. Genesis 1 gives us a 30,000 viewpoint, and then Genesis 2 gives us a very close, intimate view of one aspect of what happens in Genesis chapter 1. So let me just give you the rundown of what took place in the creation. On the first day, God created light and separated it from darkness. On the second day, he created the earth and its atmosphere. On the third day, he created the land and the seas of the earth. And then on that land, he created the vegetative life. On the fourth day, he created lights in the heavens to govern the day and the night. Then on the fifth day, God created fish and birds. Then on the sixth day, God created animal life, insects, and humanity. And so what we see in Genesis 1 is that God created all that there was or, and all that there is. And there's something interesting about that. It, pre, it, 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 it shows us that God preexisted before all of creation. It, it, uh, the conclusion that we draw from that is that God is not a created being. He has always existed. We see through the rest of Scripture that He is eternal, having no beginning, having no end, and so that everything is found in Him. Its genesis is seated in God's creative activity. On day six, God creates not just the animal life and not just the insects. He creates humanity. Adam and Eve's detailed is that part of Genesis 2 that's detailed for us. Adam was formed from the dust, we learned there. And God breathed into him life. And then God took that that man that he created, and he took from him his rib, and he performed the first surgery, and up comes this new creature called woman. 
Adam names her Eve, and she became a helper suitable for him. And then we move into Genesis chapter 3, and we see that both man and woman rebelled against God and plunged themselves into sin. That's the, that's the rundown, a quick rundown of the creative aspect of God there at the very beginning of history. And this rundown of events provides the framework framework by which we can understand all of the issues, maybe not all of the issues, but the main issues of life. And so today, I'm not going to give you a detailed dissertation on every aspect of life, a philosophical treatise on this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a simple and direct picture of God's value that he places on human life, and I'm going to do so by sharing with you six observations, and I'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible. Number one, humans are created beings. You say, I know that, Pastor. Thanks for giving me a, uh, just some profound news this morning. But I think it's a good reminder. We are created beings. You see, this is what secularism tells us. Secularism tells us, evolutionary theory tells us, that human beings, you and I, are the, the, the result of single-celled organisms evolving over billions and billions of years into more high-functioning, highly-functioning creatures so that they, we became what we are today. But that's not what the testimony of Scripture is. See, the Bible argues that the hum- human being was created in one day. Adam was created with the hand of God. And so today we're not accidents. We're not the collision of molecules. We're not the, the result of multiple mistakes over billions of years and the evolving that comes as a result of that. We're not natural selection, but instead every single human being is the recipient of divine intervention. When God created Adam and Eve, there was not natural selection coming along. There was divine intervention. And so the same was true for you and I. When the two things that are necessary for human life to come into existence took place in your mother's womb, there was divine intervention involved there. Psalm 139 speaks so beautifully of what took place in the womb for us to be created created as human beings. And so the focal point of all biblical teaching concerning the creation of humanity is this very fact that we are created by God. It's not just presented here in these two chapters. Fifteen different times in the Bible it speaks of God being the one who makes human beings. Psalm 100 verse 3 speaks of this. One of the more familiar passages to us, I'm sure. And so we're created by God. No one is an accident. That ought to be news for us or good news for us. That we're not here because of some slimy ooze evolving to make us what we are today. We're not an accident. We are the divine, creative activity of God. and Therefore, we have intrinsic and eternal value because we are created by Him. That leads us to a second observation. Humans are created in the image of God. Humans are created in the image of God. The account here in Genesis 1 is deliberately structured to move from What we see in the very beginning when light is created to the apex of God's creation, which is humanity. Now, we as humans, we're just mesmerized by the stars, right? 
I mean, it's nothing like being outside the city in the countryside where there's no light pollution, and, and you can see the heavens light up at night. I mean, if you're on a cruise ship and somehow you can get away from the lights on the ship itself and there's no clouds and you can look up into the heavens and see the Milky Way and all of those things, it's amazing. We look at that and we think, golly, that's so awesome. But God in his creation looks down and what he sees as the apex is not the Milky Way and the galaxies of the universe and all of those beautiful things and mesmerizing things and gigantic things. What he sees as the apex is you and I. Think about that. He doesn't look at angels and say, this is my best creation. I couldn't have done better than this. And Michael, as the archangel, you're the, you're the apex of everything I've done. That's not what God says. He looks at Grayson and says, you're the best that I could do. He looks at Nick and says, you're the best that I could do. We're created in the image of God. So as we look at the structure of what we see in Genesis chapter 1, this is played out grammatically. For the first five days, really the first five and a half days, God says, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. He comes to humanity and he says, let us make. There's something different in our creation. There's divine deliberation, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit deliberating over what they're going to create as the Godhead. There's divine deliberation, there's special divine design as well in who we are and how we are made up. And so God tells us here that he's going to make humanity in his image after his likeness. The word that we translate image is the Hebrew word salam. It simply means to carve or to cut off. It is a concrete term. We speak of it like this in our vernacular. He's a chip off the old block. You ever heard that statement? Means that Usually spoken of maybe a father and a son. The son acts very similar to the father. Uh, if you were to see pictures of me and my dad and my grandpa, you would say, man, there's no doubt that that's his son and he's his son because we look very similar. I had my aunt uh, chime in on uh, one of our Facebook things on Wednesday nights a few weeks ago, and she made a comment that you look just like your dad and your grandpa. I'm like, man, I don't I don't necessarily see it, but if I look at the pictures, I see it. A chip off the old block. And so that's what God says about you, you and I as humans. We are made in the image of God. And then that term is coupled with a, a, another Hebrew term that is demuth. And it's translated likeness. It refers more to similarity in the abstract or in the ideal. So it's evident here in the word use of image that man was created in the image of God. But in order to ensure that we don't think that we're exact representation of God or that we are God, it's coupled with likeness so that we understand that we're not God. But we do bear his image. We do bear his likeness. We have the image of God in our lives. What does that mean? That means you and I are created to reflect the glory of God in a way that no other aspect of creation can. We look at the universe, the stars and the galaxies, and we think, God, God is so big, so glorious, so magnificent, and it does scream to the glory of God. What does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God, Right? But that can't declare the glory of God like you and I can because we bear his image. Gives us intrinsic and eternal value as human beings. There's a third observation that flows out of this. Humans are created male and female. You know, sexuality and gender issues are two areas that are hotly debated today. 
There's a lot of gender confusion for some reason that's becoming so pervasive in our culture and a lot of issues that surround that, and it's not uh, isolated, or I shouldn't say the church is isolated from it. It's affecting us inside the church. So we need to learn how to speak to these issues. And so what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible tells us that you and I as humans are created male and female. Genesis 127. He created them male and female. There's no difference. There's no third party. There's no third aspect. Men are not created to be women, and women are not created to be men. They're created as they are because we know that God is good. We know that the Bible tells us God does not make mistakes. We know that as he created Adam and Eve here, he spoke over them, that their creation is not just good, but it's very good. And so we need to understand that humans are created male and female. Our gender is not more value than, or I should say one gender is not more valuable than the other. Both are needed in this. In the Bible, we're presented with these two genders and the roles that come along with them. But both genders always complement one another. So what we see is two aspects here, male and female. And then in that male and female genders, those genders, there are roles for each, but all of them complement one another. I think this is most clearly seen in the command to Adam to procreate, to multiply. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And every married couple's been saying amen to that from the very beginning, right? Shouldn't have joked about that, I guess. Need a different audience. But think about it. What if God had just made that statement to Adam? Could he fulfill that command? No. What if he had made that statement to Eve? Eve, your job as a woman is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Could she do that? No, she couldn't do that. He made it to both of them. Why? Because the two roles of the two genders he created come together, complement one another, and life is born. Life is multiplied. We complement one another. We respond to each other's corresponding qualities and roles. And that's true of all of God's creation. Think about what we see in these this creation account, the heavens that God creates possesses the luminaries, stars, and all of that, as well as the birds. Why would we have a sky that was just empty and void? No, God fills the sky that we look at with birds and stars and clouds and all of those things. The seas are teeming with fish. The land is filled with animals, and each of those animals has its own mate. So there's a sense of community within this companionship. For without that community, without that companionship, those aspects would be incomplete. What we find here in these two chapters reveals that every part of creation needs something else to complete it and to enable it to function as God intended it to do so. God created a female. Her name was Eve, and he gave her to Adam. She was a helper fit for him, the Bible says. And so today we value, as Christians, masculinity, and we value femininity of each particular gender because that is for our good, and it's how God has created us as human beings. We need both. Men need women. Women need men. And here, take it a step further. In the home, our children need both of that. Our children don't need to be raised with just the femininity from the mother. They need the masculinity that comes from dad and vice versa. Our children need the masculinity of dad, but they also need the femininity of mom. Both of those help our boys grow up and both of those help our daughters grow up the way God designed it. They complement 
one another. This complementary understanding of gender gender affects our sexuality as well. I'm just going to briefly touch on this, but God is good. Again, we see over and over in Scripture that God is good. He doesn't make mistakes. Therefore, as we seek to understand life, we recognize His design for sexuality. It is male and it is female. The man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, Genesis 2.25 tells us. Therefore, men and women both possess intrinsic and eternal value in their distinctiveness. Fourth thing I want you to see. Humans are created to work. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and to work it and keep it. We think sometimes that work is a curse word. Right? I don't, some of you are retired, so this is not going to be applicable to you today. But if you're still working, tomorrow you're probably going to get up. If you work a day job, you're going to get ready, and you're going to go to work. And if you're like most people, you're going to be working for the weekend, right? You're working for Friday when you can punch the clock and go home. Get the paycheck, and, and then you're going to want to go sit by the pool, sit by the lake, hang out with friends, hang out with family, just kind of vacate from work because it's, it's a grind, right? Work is a grind. And so we want to, most of the time, stay as far away from work as possible because it's a grind. But as we look at work in the Bible, it was never meant to be that, but it was always there. Work is not something that came as a result of the fall. Work predates the fall. Genesis 2.15 comes before Genesis 3, does it not? And so Adam was given work. He was created to work. We are commanded to fill the earth, to steward its resources. That's what he told Adam. That's what he tells us. And so God expects us as humans to develop a God-central culture that reflects him and steward in an environment that honors him. Work is a good thing. It adds value to our life. I mean, there's nothing like the feeling of accomplishment. There's nothing like um, standing back from a task that you've been working on for some time and see it completed. And just the overwhelming, just gratitude that I poured my heart and soul. I've sweat, I bled, I, I cried over this thing. It was hard work, but it's been completed, and it is wonderful. There's nothing like that. We're created to work. It adds value to us. And so there's a lot to be said there. We'll say that probably some more as we get into the justice areas of of life and society. Number five, humans are created for community. Earlier I, I touched on this just briefly But community is expressed in every aspect of God's creation. Remember, everything has its complement. Everything has its corresponding aspect in creation. But Adam's creation presents it the clearest. I've told you this before, but I believe that when God told Adam to name the animals, all the creatures that he created, he didn't just give him a task to do. I think God gave him this task to do to help Adam see that there was still something in his good creation that was missing. And so Adam takes the animals, and there was a lot packed into this day six, but somehow it got done. And so God brings all of the animal life before him, I guess probably maybe somehow the, the fish and the bugs and the, the livestock and all the things, they come before Adam, and so he's named them. He sees giraffes and elephants and crocodiles and, I don't know, white-tailed deer and gray squirrels and uh, what else we got, duck, duckbill platypus, and he's naming all of these things, right? And they're all coming two by two, just like, just like the ark. 
Adam gets through the end of this exercise, and through it all, it's been building in his heart. He's beginning to realize, man, the giraffe, there was a male and a female, and the elephant, there was a male and a female, and uh, the lion had the lioness. And it's all the birds coming in, and the male birds always look so much better than the girl birds, and I don't really understand that, but, uh, but they have their own mates. And so through this exercise, Adam's beginning to realize, wait, there's not someone standing next to me. There's something missing in my creation. So God uses this exercise to teach Adam that there's something missing. He needs a complementary person. He needs a woman. He needs community with another human being. Because think about our creation. We're made in the image and likeness of God. Who is God? He is a community. Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a community there. So there's a need for community in our own lives. All of God's creation is not created to be isolated. It needs other aspects to complement it and its use. So we're communal beings as human beings. We need relationships. Here's what we've seen over the last three and a half months or so, that everyone, even the most introverted of introverts, is scratching and clawing to get into relationship with other people, right? Now, I hear some introverts, and I, I lean that way, but I really do like people. Some introverts, I wonder sometimes, do you really like people? You know, I, I wonder sometimes. But we're starting to see even the introverted introverts are scratching and clawing that they need to be in relationship with other people. Why? It's because that's the way God created us. We weren't created to sit in isolation. We weren't created to be shut down and locked down for long periods of time. We weren't created to never shake a hand, to never give a hug, to never share a meal. I mean, Dr. Fauci has got it wrong. We do need to shake hands. We do need to give hugs. We do need to share meals together. Why? God created us that way. And if we don't do it, we will go insane. That's how we're created. We're communal. I know, Heidi, you're all about community. <laughs> That's why I met a guy. He's attended here a few times. I saw him at the gym the other day. He's like, hey, you're the pastor of Red Lane. And, of course, I mean, I'm like, oh, man, I, you kind of look familiar. I'm not saying this, but I'm thinking in my mind, you kind of look familiar, but I, I haven't seen you much, so I don't know who your name or whatever is. And so he introduced himself to me, and, and we talked a little bit, and I recognized who he was and who he who he correlates with here, and, and, uh, and then we're about to go our separate ways because it's a gym, you know, so you got to go to your station and, and continue to work. And he's like, man, I would shake your hand, but you know COVID. And I was like, dude, bring it in. I'm okay. Shake my hand. And we shook hands, and, and it was good. We're community-oriented beings because God is a community-oriented being. Sixthly and lastly, humans are not today as they were created. They are fallen. They're fallen. What we see here in the text is that Adam and Eve, prior to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they enjoyed intimacy with God, intimacy with one another, on a level that no other human being outside of Jesus Christ himself has experienced since then. Because why? Sin. God told Adam that here's the garden, here's everything that I've created, it's for you. It's for your enjoyment. Use it, eat from it, live in it, experience it, take pleasure in it. It's all for you. There's one stipulation, the tree that is of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of that fruit. And the day that you eat of it, you will die. Well, we know the story. We know that Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. They took of that fruit, and they died. They died. 
Now, I bet Adam thought he would immediately die. I don't even know if he fully understood what death means. We're just not giving privy to all the information. We just get the high points of what's taking place in this conversation between them and God. So I don't know if he fully understood it, but he understood it enough to know I should not eat of that tree. But he did eat of that tree, and when he ate of it, he died. Now, we know the story that he didn't actually die until Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, 900 or so years later, but he died in that moment. He died spiritually. The Bible tells us that he immediately, he and Eve both immediately recognized their nakedness. The issue is not the fact that they didn't wear clothes. The issue is the fact that they recognized God was no longer covering them. There was something missing in their life between them and God. The relationship had been severed, and it takes it a step further in the way the Bible describes it because when God then, the next verse, verse 8, comes walking in the garden, probably like he did every single day, to fellowship with his creatures on a level that no other creature gets to experience. When he came in, they are hiding from God. He calls out to them, and he begins to have conversation with them. Why are you hiding? Why do you have these coverings? What's going on with this? He's leading them to a place of understanding their brokenness, understanding their sinfulness, and confessing that to the Lord. He's, he's preaching the gospel to him as he does this. And they begin to say certain things. The woman you gave me, she was tempted by this serpent, and we ate of this fruit. And the, and the woman's saying, the, the serpent made me do it. And so everybody's passing blame. Everybody's passing the, the, the buck. And so what we're seeing is that all that God created them for and to enjoy is now broken. This image and this design is broken because of sin. Spiritually, they're cut off from God. And physically, they're going to be cut off from creation in just a matter of years. Their disobedience broke their ability to perfectly image God before creation. And yet humanity still bears that image today. It's not been completely lost in the fall. It is, however, not what it once was. God's image and likeness have been distorted. They've been perverted by sin. It severed the relationship that we are created for with God. In all the ways that I just explained. But it's done more than that. You see, when Adam began to blame God and blame his wife, and then God in the curse to, to Eve says that there's going to be contention between you and your husband. All of women can say amen to that. It's just sin has broken everything in our lives. Marriages, we have contention between spouses because of sin, right? Family struggle, why? It's because sin. Genesis 4, we see Cain raises up and kills his brother Abel. Why? Because of sin. Everything that happens in our culture is because of sin. We're divided over gender. Our issues, gender issues is because of sin. Our race issues is because of sin. Sexuality issues are the result of sin. Everything is broken because of sin. So what do we do? How do we respond? We make sure that we are always moving back to Scripture and interpreting the culture in which we live, which is out of control towards sin, and we look at it through the lens of Scripture and we share the gospel with them because we know that the hope for mankind is not morality, it's not good behavior or better behavior, it's not seven steps to whatever. The hope for humanity and the sinfulness and brokenness that they're experiencing is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Judeo-Christian ethic that we've been used to in our nation it was the driving force in our culture. We know it's waning. We know the light seems to be fading faster and faster and faster. 
I said earlier that Christians have a role to play in this cultural fight for the soul of America, and, and I do believe our role is to be, is to be a, a voice for morality, but our role is not to be the moral majority. You say, what do you mean by that? Our message can't be do better, try more, just live this certain kind of life. No, that's not who we're to be. We're not to be those who, who speak for behavior modification. Our platform, our message has to be the gospel. We're sent to be salt and light in a dark world. We're to bring flavor and preserving presence in a decadent place, as I said earlier. We're to shed light into the dark places. This is the biblical and gospel mandate that we've been given by Jesus. So as we seek to intersect faith in the gospel to our culture, we do so valuing each person's life. And let me make four statements about that, and we'll close the plane. Land the plane. I guess you'd close it before you get in the air. Otherwise, it'd be a bad day in the air. First of all, because life is valuable, we value the unborn. These are not going to be on the screen. We value the unborn. As followers of Jesus, as Bible-believing Christians, we are going to stand with the most vulnerable in our society. We value the unborn, right? Why? Because life is intrinsically and eternally valuable. Every human being matters. And unfortunately, the most dangerous place in our culture for a human being is the womb of its own mother. As millions and millions and millions of babies have been aborted over the last 40 years. So what are we to do? What is our position as a follower of Jesus? We're going to stand for life. Unborn life. And so I'm just going to tell you right now that as a follower of Jesus, that ought to affect how you vote. That ought to affect how you and what you give your money to. Because we as Christians, we must stand for life. Why? Because God just created that life. It wasn't just two human beings that came together. Life is the creation of God. Psalm 139 tells us that, that we are wonderfully and beautifully made in the womb by the finger of God. We value the unborn. Secondly, we value the aged and the disabled. The Bible over and over again calls us to stand with, to serve, to come alongside, to assist those who are challenged and who can't do for themselves. And so we value those who are aged. We value those who are disabled. That means that when grandma gets up in age, we just don't take her out to the backfield like we would do an old cow and cap her off. That's what we, not what we do. That's a little bit more drastic than I said it in the first service. Sorry, I figured you could handle it. But that's what we do. That's what, I mean, I just want you to know this morning. Our society is heading there more and more. 20 years ago, euthanasia was like, no way. And then we went through a cycle. We had Dr. Kevorkian and all of that, and, and they kind of softened us up to that. And I've even heard Christians making the statement, man, it would just be better if they, they would go on to be with the Lord. And so I see Christians easing their way closer and closer to this idea and this notion of euthanasia is actually more merciful than anything else. They see grandma suffering, grandma, grandpa suffering, or there's a tragic accident. Lord, help us to look at life and see it as more valuable than we currently are. We do those things to animals, and you can make an argument for or against it, but we should never even entertain the thought when it comes to human life. Thirdly, we value the immigrant. I wholeheartedly agree that it's important for nations to have laws and nations to have borders and for nations to enforce those laws and to protect those borders. That's not what this statement makes. 
What I'm arguing for here is this. As a follower of Jesus who believes the gospel, that I'm going to do everything I can to take the gospel to the immigrant who lives across the street, down the road, across the neighborhood, down on the other side of the city and in our state and around our country. I'm going to take the gospel to the immigrants that God is bringing to us because the Bible tells us over and over again that God cares for those who are the immigrants. So we're going to love them. We're going to serve them. We're going to share the gospel with them. We're not going to stand in the way of governmental authorities. God's placed that there. But we will love the immigrants. We will serve the immigrants. And then lastly, we value the sinner. Sin comes in all shapes and it comes in all sizes. And so no matter the sin or the lifestyle, we as the people of God, bearing the image of God and the cross of Christ, seek to love and to serve sinful people. We desire to win the right to share the gospel with them because their lives are valuable. Sinful people are image bearers of God. And so let's just throw it in some classes that we probably think of sometimes. And I hate grouping people together, but people who would come in, they're all tatted up, and they look like they're, whatever that means they look like, but they have a history of drug addiction or alcohol addiction or sexual addiction or the worst of the worst. They're just rough people. Life's been hard on them. Or take it the other way, the, the, the other side of that. They're self-righteous. They go to church. They, they look good. They can quote the Bible. They grew up in that. They're religious. doesn't matter. Both extremes, what we're going to do as the people of God who believe the gospel is we're going to love the sinner, value the sinner, take the gospel to them in their self-righteousness, in their hatred of God, in their atheism. doesn't matter where they find themselves because sin comes in all shapes and it comes in all sizes. So we as the people of God, as the church of God, we need to have doors that are open and say any are welcome. Let the homosexual come and sit among us and worship God with us. Hear the gospel and be saved out of that lifestyle. Let the abusive husband come. And we'll stand with his wife and his children against his abuse, but we'll love him enough to tell him the truth and share Jesus with him. And the self-righteous person who's grown up in church and thinks that you know, church attendance and all that's good enough, we'll stand with them and lovingly care, them, care for them with the gospel. It doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, or what background they have, or what side of the tracks they're from. We're going to value the sinner because every single person has value. That's what the gospel tells us to do. And so this morning, we believe the gospel. As Nick comes and we move into a time of response, how, how are we to respond to this type of message? What are we to do with our faith in this culture? If you're a follower of Jesus, here's what we do. We believe the Bible. Let's interpret the, the culture through the grid of Scripture. What does the Bible say about issues? And in that, let's not just be about facts and information. Well, I can quote this verse, and I can say that this sin is wrong. No, let's point them back to Jesus, because all sin is wrong. Let's not get on our token sins. But let's say, you know, the greatest need in your life is a relationship with Jesus. He's changed my life, and this is how he did it. This is what I was like. This is what I am now. I'm not what I once was. I'm not what I will be. But bless God, I'm growing in the Lord Jesus. So let's take the Word of God and let's share it with lost people and sinners who are desperately in need of it. Why? Because God loves them. He values them. And so this morning, that brings it back to us. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? Are you in a growing, vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, here's how you, what you need to do. 
You need to believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to pray a prayer, a simple prayer like this. says, Lord God, I'm a sinner. I realize that. I confess that to you. I need your forgiveness. I ask that you would change my heart and become the Lord and Savior of my life. A simple prayer like that can change you for eternity. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not living for him, maybe it's time for you to return. Maybe you, you realize that, you know, my, my perspective on people is not what it ought to be. I'm kind of dogmatic in some areas that I don't need to be dogmatic about as far as I'm not even interacting with people because they're not like this. Or those, those are heathen. Those are sinners. Maybe it's a time for us to return to Jesus and have some loving grace about us. There's always grace when we come to Him. So if you want to put your life in the Lord's hand and maybe need somebody to pray with you, I'm going to ask you to take your phone and sometime in the next few minutes or this afternoon and just reach out to us. Send me a text if you've got my phone number. I'd love to share and pray with you this afternoon. But as we sing in just a moment, let's allow the Lord to take his word and set it deep within our hearts and let it to change, allow it to change us today. Let me pray for us, and we're going to sing in response to him. Father, we thank you this morning for the grace of God that found us in our brokenness, found us in our sin. God, like Adam and Eve, every one of us, prior to our relationship with Jesus, we're trying to make our own coverings and hiding from you. But Lord, I'm grateful that just like you did with Adam and Eve, you always pursue us. And in this room this morning, you may be pursuing some men, some women, some children. And Lord, you're showing them that they need a relationship with you today. And God, I pray that they would say yes, that they would finally stop running. They would finally stop trying to fix themselves and say, you know what, I'm a broken mess and I need Jesus. He's the only answer for me. God, give them the boldness and the courage to respond to your invitation this morning. Lord, I pray for us as Christians that we would, God, once again, afresh and anew, see the value in each person's life. They may, well, they may not be the same color. They may not be the same age. They may not have the same amount of economic status, whatever that is. None of those things, those categories matter. The only thing that matters is, is that that other person is a child or a creation of God. There's value there. So help us to love them, to care for them, to serve them, because they're made in the image and likeness of God, just like we are. So break our hearts, Lord, for people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's respond.